Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side also. But a Samaritan, while travelling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. How many times have we heard this story? And it's fair enough that we should because it is one of the great stories. It's a story that follows the famous rule of three. Goldilocks and the three bears, the three little pigs, the three musketeers, the Chris, uh, a Christmas carol, the um, Charles Dickens story with the three ghosts, Christmas, past, present and future. It's a, an important way of telling stories and it goes through all kinds of things. It's a, we use it for jokes as well. So it's an engaging story. We want to, we want to, we get a, something set up for us and we want to know how different people react to it. And there's lots of ways of reading and I want to kind of do a, a slightly different reading than, than I'm used to, to looking at. Mostly because I get easily bored, um, and that's a you know it's a problem when you're trying to sort of do important things. But I do get easily bored, and I get easily bored with the Bible. 
because I've read it. You know, I went to Sunday school as a kid, like some of you. Heard these stories over and over again, and they wash over you after a while, or at least they do me. So I've got to try and find different ways to think about it in order for it to be, remain real in my life. And so one way of reading this, and it's not the only way, there's lots of different ways into a story like this, like all good stories. They should have multiple meanings. They should be what, um, his, uh, what scholars often call, they should be thick with meaning. Uh, and if it's not a good story, uh, one of the ways you know it's not good is because it's really only saying one thing. This is a good story. And here's one way of looking at it. It's looking at it as a kind of a story, an archetypal story, or a story of how we think and feel about life. And we've been taught this in the, in the last um, hundred years by people like Jung and Joseph Campbell who've told us to look at stories, particularly mythical stories, stories that go back a long way, not as things that never happened. And this is clearly a story. Jesus isn't saying this is what happened yesterday. He's telling a story to make a point or to make lots of points. Um, the, the, the purpose of a story, of a myth, is not to tell you something that, that happened or didn't happen. That's not the point. The point of this mythological story is to tell you about something that happens over and over again. And we do this all the time. Television is full, particularly good television, is full of morality plays where a thing happens and we watch people try and work it out. And we, if it's well done, we imagine ourselves in that situation, how we have dealt with the same situation in our, in our lives or, or how we might. So let's begin with the man on the, on the side of the road. He, he, what does he represent for us? Well, one of the ways we could look at it is he represents for us our existential fear that something terrible will happen to us and, and who we really are and our ability to do things is stripped away from us. I mean, not many of us in the room today are young. So there's a pretty good chance that this may happen to us. It's happened to people we love, where their agency, their ability to act and be responsible in the world suddenly gets stripped away, by, often by illness or by a tragic event. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we're frightened of that. I have a dear friend who's uh, sadly now died, but was quadriplegic for most of his life. He had a tragic accident uh, as an 18-year-old and was in a chair and uh, an extraordinary mind, a really interesting thinker um, who went on to do all kinds of studies and things, but physically could do very little at all. And one of the, the things he thought about was how often people had trouble spending time with him or being with him because they were not sort of embarrassed but they were frightened is how he understood it they were frightened that that could be them i mean the accident that happened to him happened in a split second and it could happen to anyone and we're seeing in him that possibly that could be us and we're frightened about that and the man on the side of the road might be that kind of character for us He's been stripped, literally stripped, of the important things that make him human. He's so, so much so that he can no longer live fully. He's literally, according to the story, he's half dead. And we're frightened of that kind of pain, of that kind of disability. Disability, our ability is destroyed. We're frightened of that. 
and we don't know what to do with it. So it's best to leave it alone. And we're all dealing with it all the time. All of us in, in this room, we've been dealing with it, of course, since we were born. But when you're five, or when you're Jonty and Bo's age, you don't, you know, they're going to live forever. They're not thinking about um, how their life will go. And they're not supposed to at this age, but we all do at our age, shouldn't we? I, um, I used to do a, a lot of work in youth work, and I was um, often called in to do all kinds of consultations, and sometimes at a national level, and, um, and now nobody calls me at all. Nobody's interested in what I did. In fact, I went to a national consultation the other day to give, a, and it's what reminded me of it, with another person of my vintage, and we went in to give some input on, on a particular historical um, thing about youth employment that went back to the, to the Keating years, and I'd been involved in it. Um, but as we were telling it, the younger people in the panel that we were uh, speaking to, we might have been talking about the Peloponnesian Wars. You know, it had nothing to do with them. And, you know, I hope they will take some of the stuff we said, because there's, there's some value in it that they could learn, mostly learn not to do some of the things we did in order to try and get forward, uh, but, you know, to learn from it. But you get that sense of how quickly we become irrelevant. How easy it is to be sort of not be the kind of the person that we were and it all gets stripped away so quickly and we're frightened of that. So how do we respond to it? Well, we're given three, three ways in this story of how people respond to it and, and it's not something that will not happen. Pain and, um, and both physical and emotional comes to us all, all the time. So first of all, we get a priest. Well, a priest, in all the archetypal understandings, a priest is, some, is the kind of sense of what it means to be a human being who links things together. Because, because formally, a priest is someone, um, particularly in this time, who is the mediator between earth and heaven. And in their cosmology, heaven was up, up and earth was down, and you needed this mediator in between. Uh, and if you read the book of Hebrews, it's all about this idea. And, they, uh, and the book of Hebrews is trying to rethink the idea of priest and put Jesus in that place. And it's, it's quite complicated because we don't think that way, but it's really interesting. So in the archetypal sense, the priest bit is us and our ability to tie things together, to unify things. It's the part of us that is insightful and brings things together because we know what life can be like when we're disjointed, when the inner sense of who we are and the outer reality of who we are don't fit together. They're not congruent. And when we bring those together, there's a level of harmony. So that's the job of the, if you like, the priest archetype in our lives, is to unify things, to bring things together within ourselves and within our communities. That's our kind of high calling. So what does this priest do in this story? Well, he passes by on the other side. He ignores completely the otherness. He, he, he makes, sorry, the, the, the person who's on the street bleeding... As, as if they were other, as if they had no connection between him and them. It's, he's not unifying, he's dividing. It's like he's going completely against what, it, what he knows in his heart to be as a human being. It's a total disconnect. And if you've ever spent time with people who've contemplated suicide, often one of the stories you hear is a total disconnect with their experience of themselves and their experience of the world. 
they're kind of, a, they see themselves as a non-entity in the world. And often people will say, well, it wouldn't matter if I wasn't here. I'm not of any importance to anyone. I have no meaning and purpose in this. So it, it wouldn't matter. And, and the pain inside me is so great that that seemed like a reasonable way of dealing with it. It's a total disconnect. And then we've got another one. We've got this Levite. Now, in, in the ancient times, a Levite was, were the fixers in the, in the temple and in the, the surrounds. So they, they sort of made things work in the temple precincts. And the temple was an incredibly complex place. So this would be like, um, you know, maybe in our days it would be like a ministerial um, staff member. Uh, like if you want to go and speak to the Minister of Housing, for example, you have to go through a level of, of his or her uh, staff people and talk to them, and they're, they're the ones that make it all work. That's the part of us, if you like, that wants to actually have agency in the world, to make a contribution, to make things really work, to do something, to fix things, to have agency. And what does this one do in this story? completely denies his agency. Here is a moment when he could do something. There's always a moment when we could act with agency and he just lets life take over. He just lets it all happen around him. He denies the true nature of who he is. It just dissipates. This happens to us all the time. We're always offered an opportunity to make decisions and to live fully. And how many times have you found yourself sort of backing away, just letting things go, just letting yourself just be carried along when you know that there's an opportunity for you to fully be present and you, we choose not to be? And then we've got this Samaritan. Now we know any of us who've been in Sunday school for more than 10 minutes know that the Samaritans were not friendly with the Jews and the Jews were not friendly with the Samaritans even though they were living close to each other and they were interconnected and they intermarried over generations there was this animosity so a good person to choose because he's an outsider it's the if you like to think about it in the way I'm talking about it it's there's a part of you that you are rejecting all the time pushing away an outsider a stranger and there's nothing, there's nothing worse in your life than this sense that you don't even know who you are. Often I find myself in that situation. I do something or something happens to me and I react in a certain way. And think, who is this person who is this angry or this despairing or this nonplussed? How does this, how did, where did this come from? Like there's whole parts of me that, that are dark. There's a, 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 not that brilliant a book, but great title, a book called Men, the Dark Continent. And it's a book about trying to understand the men in your life. And it's not far off the truth. Um, now, I can't speak for women, but certainly many of the men that I've known and in my life um, are a stranger to themselves. So here comes this kind of strange part of yourself, the stranger, the outsider, that and turns up and starts to do something. It's the painful part of ourselves that we've rejected. The hurt that we received when we were five or when we were 55. 
and the way we've shrunk and kind of pushed that aside. You see it all the time with people who go through trauma and then they will say, oh, well, you know, I'll get over it or it doesn't re- it's not that bad. Like, dismiss it rather than being able to face it. But in this story, it's faced full on. The rejected part of yourself, if you look at it in the way I'm telling it, meets the wounded, pained part, the broken. This Samaritan in the story is on the other side of the street. There's a reconnection. It's as if the street is the divider, the thing that breaks people apart, the thing that makes us less than who we could be and who we're invited to be all the time. And the street disappears in the end of the story because he's on the same side. He wants to cross that divide that we have within ourselves. And if we have it within ourselves, we have it with, amongst ourselves as well. Much of the anger, uh, when you read the research, much of the anger that men have that comes out as violence and we know that they make up 95 or 97% of most prison populations. There are women who are violent and in prison too, but it's mostly men. Uh, and it's men who struggle to understand themselves and, and act out. The research is saying more and more that they're acting out of fear. They're frightened of who they know themselves to be or who they don't know themselves to be. They're frightened that other people will discover that they're not big and tough and strong and in charge. That they're actually not much different than the rest of us than they were when they were children, frightened and confused, which is how we spent a lot of our time. But it acts, but in order to stop that happening, they, and, and that being discovered, they act it out. And they live a life of, of anger and frustration. And this will, and I hate to, uh, to confess to this, but it happens to me on the road if I get cut off when I'm driving. And a rage can come out of me. And if I'm, really in, if I'm really paying attention, I can go back to where it came from. That, in fact, I'm feeling really lonely or despairing or feeling rejected in some other area. It's got nothing to do with whoever cut me off. And, but but that, that it's, um, I've kind of bottled it up. I haven't been able to manage it. I haven't looked at it. So it comes out all of a sudden in rage and I want to you know, yell and scream and blow my horn at whoever it is that's cut me off. And that's, that's like a complete um, disconnect with who, from who I really am, a, a, a missing part of myself. This Samaritan, it's come from somewhere else that I've rejected and a deep connection and wants to cross the dividing line and make it real. And of course, when you're angry with other people, most of it is somewhere inside you're angry with yourself. And that's hard to reach. It's hard to take. To take. Because what we know we want is to bind the other person's wounds, to care for each other. We know that we want to do that for ourselves. We would love it if somebody would bind our wounds and pour oil on troubled waters. And we want it to go on. Like in the story, the Samaritan says, look after him and I'll come back and we'll keep doing this. Because this is how... Life is made up. It's made up of being able to be present and to do things. 
Quite often we find ourselves in, in, the, in Hope's Cafe, and those of us who are there often, with people who have really got nothing much to offer. They're pretty sure they've got nothing to offer. But they take a little bit of courage and they're willing to come in and help in the kitchen or do some sweeping up. And suddenly there's a sense of discovery that actually they are of value. But a young man come in this week who's been so sick and really, really unwell in all kinds of areas of his life. We haven't seen him for months and we don't have a contact detail, so we just wondered how he was. He turned up looking very, very poorly, very unwell. But he said, I'm missing coming back and sweeping the floors. He always used to love to sweep the floor at the end of a day of cafe. And he said, next week, I think I'm going to be strong enough, I'm going to come back and sweep the floors. It's the sense of, of, of being present and, and a part of us. And, just, and he, he was happy to know that we had missed him. What I know of his life, there are not many people who do that. Anyway, got to stop. Just one last thing. Jesus said to him, which one of these is neighbour? And at the end, the guy said, the one who was compassionate. But he was wrong. Because they were all neighbour to each other. We're neighbours to each other whether we like it or not. We can do it badly. We can make sure that poor people don't get supported so that rich people have to build walls and pretend. We can do that. But I think the answer was all of them. But in our story, two of them missed out on how to live fully themselves, how to be open to themselves and therefore to others. But that the outsider, the one bit that had been rejected in, in, a, in a person's life, the one sense of that moment of not being present, brought in and able to, be, be, to have agency to do things, to be present, and to build not only, in this story, a physical life rebuilt that was half dead, but to make things cohere, to make them unified, to make them, in the Jewish sense of the term peace, which is the word shalom, which is about being in harmony, about wholeness, about completeness.